0: You'll notice, friends, that we didn't read the first six verses of chapter 5 in James, James 5. Why? I found it quite difficult going through this book because I don't like getting told off. And James, at the beginning of chapter 5, is in good telling-off form. And first of all, when I looked at these verses, I thought, do they really apply to you and me? I don't really think we have many dishonest landowners in the congregation or employers who fail to pay their workers. Any corrupt millionaires in the congregation should see me after the service, but I doubt if I'll get knocked down in the rush and then you know i thought we ought to read them because this is the word of god so buckle your seat belts let me read these first six verses now then you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you your wealth has rotted And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter you have condemned and murdered the innocent who are not opposing you. See what I mean? It's quite hard stuff to take. Does it apply to you and me? Well, harvest is a time, of course, when we have to thank God for the abundance of material blessings we enjoy, and you only have to go into any branch of Saints Asda, Wait Rose, Tesco's, Morrison's, at al to realize how enormous that abundance is. Strenuous efforts have been made to change the international trade systems which allow it. And there are politicians, much as we're cynical about politicians, there are politicians who have done their best and are doing their best to address this dreadful situation which allows us to enjoy such a high standard of living while people in the developing world have a much lower one. Did you know that 4. billion people still live in poverty, existing on 80 pence a day as we celebrate our harvest? We should remember that. Now, I'm not the sort of minister to criticize his congregation and make them feel guilty and responsible for political systems, they can do nothing to change. But we've got to be aware of this, friends. We've got to read those verses. We've got to remember that the poor of the world are crying out against the rich world. And if we can do anything at all in the way of using fair trade goods, in the way of Giving regularly to tear fund. Do you remember the video we saw, the DVD rather we saw? What do you do when you get your paycheck? Do you give thanks? Do you give away? How many of us tithe? How many of us realize that actually a tenth of what we receive belongs to God? And if we're not giving that tenth, then we're actually stealing God's part. We're only giving after the tenth. And how much of that tenth are we prepared to give to the poor of the world? These are questions we can't avoid. We can't. It may seem that all that we do is a drop in the ocean, but as one Famous retailer delights in reminding us every little helps. Well, the next six verses are about being patient, and that particular virtue is often in short supply. Be patient. Therefore, my brothers, until the Lord's coming, see how the farmer waits for the field to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient, and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. If you're a farmer, and I know that there are people in the congregation who have been farmers and still are, and they know that we're all at the mercy of the weather. No matter how carefully a farmer prepares the ground and how diligently he or she nurtures the crop, unless the sun shines and the rain falls at the right time, there's no guarantee of a good harvest. These days, we're much less in touch with agriculture in the countryside than our parents and grandparents were, and that's a shame. Some people who are growing up in a, an urban environment have never encountered a sheep or pig in the flesh. So is nothing new, of course. I remember my father, who grew up in Islington, um, before it was gentrified, I hasten to add, used to think that apples grew in a mine until he saw an apple tree. There are some children who've never seen a cow being milked or... Heard that lovely, contented sound after a hen has laid an egg? I believe it's good, really good, once a year to thank and to pray for the people who've worked so hard to provide our food. But we're here to celebrate another harvest, aren't we? Because today we're celebrating the harvest of Christian commitment represented by our responses to the presentations which were made early in September. See, there's only one reason for the church to exist, and that is to keep the rumor of God alive. In a fast-changing and increasingly secular society, no one else is going to witness to the gospel if we don't. If we don't maintain the witness, then no one else will. And the way to do that is by offering ourselves as living sacrifices. And that's what James is talking about in verses 10 and 11. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What do you feel about the book of Job? Don't worry, I'm not going to start a series on the book of Job. But the book of Job is a wonderful book. Absolute tremendous. And really it can be summed up in one sentence. And I'm not saying that. I'm quoting one of my professors from theological college who used to say that the book of Job was written to show one thing. You can love God without strings. You can love God and get zilch out of it. Nothing at all. And that really is the only sort of love that is genuine, isn't it? The love that gives and seeks to have nothing in return. The love that our Savior gave when he hung on the cross. Oh, it's great to come to church and be surrounded with flowers and fruit and tins of beans, packets of rice, and feel good because you know that the Easter team in Crawley are going to give it to the homeless and those on their beam ends. It's great to sing harvest hymns, to smell that wonderful fruit and veg smell as we come into church. But if that's all our commitment amounts to, we might as well give up now. uh, uh, James, rather, says, as you know, we consider those blessed who have persevered. Perseverance means being willing to suffer. means willing to give and give until it hurts and then going on giving. It means offering your hands, your mind, your will, your heart to gather the harvest in, the harvest that is predicted in verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming. Is near. Oh, yes. We need to persevere. And then in verse 12, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. I remember a glorious occasion once um, in St. Mary Cray, where Jenny and I were for 11 years in South London. And i just conducted the third wedding of a particular Saturday. And the bride and bridesmaids and all the rest of the guests had gone out for a refreshment break. Um, And the bride came back into the vestibule. She didn't know that I was standing behind the door. She could only see her dad. And she was very, very vexed because the bridesmaids were nowhere to be seen. I won't relate the words she used, but they were quite colorful. Her father could see my face. She couldn't. And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, vicar. I tried to teach her English, but all she'd ever learn was Anglo-Saxon. Well, there are some people who quite naturally lapse into a different sort of language. But James says, as the Lord Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Actually, James has a great deal to, to say about speech, doesn't he? The whole of chapter 3, or almost the whole of chapter 3, is about this little appendage in between your teeth and how mighty and, and, and dangerous and, and, and explosive it can be. And then in chapter 1, in verse 19... He says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. At about half past one this morning, there was a group of gentlemen outside the stand-up inn having the most wonderful argument. I can't exactly remember what they said, but it was fairly colorful. I got up and I looked out of the window, and I wondered... Shall I tell them what I really think? And then I thought, no. (laughs) They might respond in kind. (laughs) Oh, we need to be careful about what we say. Yes, we do. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. And so we come to the final section of chapter 5. And here, James brings us to the heart of our faith, our relationship with God and his people. And one of the wonderful things about James is that he doesn't speak in abstract terms. He's intensely practical. Verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If you have sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So how do we deal with trouble? Well, we pray. You know the old hymn, Is There Trouble Anywhere? Take it to the Lord in prayer. How should we behave when life is great? We should sing songs of praise. How should we deal with sickness? Well, this evening, friends, we have a healing service. We have a a service when we'll gather around the Lord's table here in the church in order to make use of all this wonderful and to enjoy all this wonderful decoration. And there will be people on the concourse who are prepared to pray for you if you come forward and ask for prayer for healing. That's one of the ways in which we make practical use of this uh, admonition in God's word. But why not call for the elders of the church? When our second son, Philip, was born, he was born naturally. My first son was born by Caesarean section, so it was like a first birth, and Jenny had an intensely difficult and painful labor. And it took a long, long time for her to recover her strength. And during that time, we called for the elders of the church, the church that we served there in Hemel Hempstead in Hertfordshire. I shall never forget the rather embarrassed group of six and two ladies walking up the stairs in the manse, standing round the bed, praying for Jenny. I'm not quite sure whether we used oil or not. I think we didn't, but that doesn't matter because this isn't a ritual which has got to be performed in the prescribed way. The crucial thing is that we brought God into the situation in a way in which he had not been brought before. We turned to him. We put his word into practice, We said, somebody is sick, call for the elders of the church. Why don't we do it? I know that my fellow elders would be only too grateful and privileged to do this for you, to to share in this ministry. Why don't we take God's word seriously? In Jenny's case, the healing wasn't instantaneous, by any means, there was a noticeable improvement But it was actually the beginning of a long succession of back problems which were only put right through surgery. The point is that we had been obedient to God's word and He honored our obedience. You know, that is something that I can testify as I have grown older in the Christian life. If you are obedient, God honors you, He really does. If you take him seriously, if you say, Lord, you've said this and I'm going to take you seriously, he will honor you. Let me just turn to uh, Malachi, to the end of the Old Testament. I haven't got page numbers in my Bible, or at least not uh, page numbers that you would recognize. But Malachi chapter 3. Has somebody got it? Can they call out the page number? sorry 961 961 have a look at verse 6 i the lord do not change so you o descendants of jacob are not destroyed ever since the time your forefathers of your forefathers you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them return to me and i will return to you says the lord almighty But you will ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you will ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, And pour out so much blessing that you will not have room to receive it. Now, he's not only talking about money because we tithe our time and our gifts. But are we taking God seriously? Well, we come to the last few verses of the chapter. Verse 17 Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, you might think that that's all very well for Elijah, because Elijah was a spiritual superman, wasn't he? Elijah never got anything wrong, Elijah was never depressed. Elijah never came to the end of himself. Elijah never thought of committing suicide. Oh, yes, he did. All of those things. All of them. He was a man just like you and me. He was a man who knew his limitations, who was intensely aware of his weaknesses. He was a man who, in the midst of what seemed to be a tremendous victory, just came to the end of himself. He dealt with all those prophets of Baal, if you know the story. He'd called down fire from heaven. He proved before the nation that the Lord, he is God, and that Baal was just a charlatan, just a falsehood, just an idol. What happened to him after that? One terrifying woman... Scared the wits out of him. I know how he felt. Anyway, Jezebel, she said, If I don't make your life by the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, you've had your chips, mate. And he turned round and he ran away. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts but your people have thrown down your altars. They have slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. He was at the end of himself, and he needed care and attention, food, rest, strength, all those things. Before his equilibrium could be restored, he needed to be taken by the hand, taken out into the wilderness, before God could show him what he was doing in a situation which appeared to Elijah to be completely hopeless. So don't ever think that your prayers are not effective because you're not a very good Christian or you're not a very spiritually wonderful person. Just remember Elijah. He was a man just like us. So we need to pray and we need to take God seriously. And then finally, Verse 19, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this whoever turns a sinner away from error will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. There's no situation that's hopeless in God's terms. You know that? Just remember that. The devil will tell you that there are hopeless situations. There are not. There are no hopeless situations in God's terms. Even when someone wanders from the truth, they can still be brought back. The ruin of lives wrecked by drink or drugs or any other kind of addiction can be restored. That's why I go regularly to Wakefield Prison to see a man who used to be a minister of the gospel, but who's spending a life sentence there for child rape. It's appalling, isn't it? But it's not hopeless. No one is beyond the reach of grace. And that, in a nutshell, is the gospel. And isn't it wonderful that after all his strictures about the danger of false religion, this is where James ends his letter in verse 20. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner away from his error will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, that doesn't mean that we can make a more effective atonement than Jesus? Of course it doesn't. It simply means that every one of us is on the same level. We're all sinners saved by grace. And the only place for you and me is under the shadow of the cross.